Hello and welcome to Plotress. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're talking about The Duke and I by Julia Quinn. So this is the first book in the Bridgerton series. And why are we talking about the Bridgerton series, Lane? Well, apparently there's going to be a TV show of some kind. So like all of the romance novel portion of Instagram is like a blowing up about this. I don't know how much of a big deal this is outside of like the romance novel community, but yeah, this is going to be like Netflix's big show with Shonda Rhimes as the showrunner. They cast a Black Simon, which apparently had some people pissed off. And I will warn you right now, if you're one of those people, you're not going to like what I have to say. Yeah, probably not. I'm really excited. The guy's hot. <laughs> yeah, doesn't bug me. I will. I will tell you that like I literally looked up if there were black dukes like after we had this discussion well my favorite was that somebody was like i can't believe they had an african-american duke and i'm like i'm pretty sure there are no african-american dukes because of the word american it's the word american there is one african-american duchess there is but i'm pretty sure there are no african-american dukes and never will be unless sure. a lot of inheritance law changes yeah unless a lot of things change but so we wanted to review this, one, uh, because it's going to be topical, the show's coming out. Yeah. But I also think overall we're making an effort both to do some of the more popular works in romance yeah. and some of the lesser known authors. Like, yeah. I think we've done a lot of well-known authors, lesser known works. Yes. And so we're trying to like diversify beyond just what we explicitly love. What we love, yeah. Um, so I will say... Spoiler alert for Fly With Me coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> Mark your calendars, guys. Uh, so, I, so I will say that I personally am a, used to be like a really big Julia Quinn fan. So back in 2008, this was like before Instagram, before Facebook, no, like right around the beginning of Facebook. Um, yeah, uh, 2007. Yeah. Facebook was pretty ubiquitous because that's the year I started college. Yeah. So, um, this was like the beginning of social networks mm -hmm. in general. And so I, I read, um, Romancing Mr. Bridgerton, which I love, Still love to this That's day. That's book four. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Um, but I loved it. And then I got on this big Julia Quinn kick. And I started reading, like, everything by Julia Quinn. And back then, there was no way to really follow an, an, an author, you know, unless you wrote them, like, an email or something like that, which I, I'm not that kind of person to write my favorite author an email or a letter. But she had a website, and then she had a mailing list. So I was on the Julia Quinn mailing list for many, many years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You and I are not that far apart in age, and that is, like, a concept I cannot understand. I know. Isn't that funny? And, like, just, like, literally last year, I um, got off the Julia Quinn mailing list because of the new... Um, Law, cookie laws in Europe. Everyone had to like resubscribe to their stuff, and I just didn't resubscribe. <laughs> and but who needs mailing lists for something like that at this day and age? Exactly. Like the mailing lists I'm on are all like news aggregators. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh wow, that is. Yeah. Wow. And so I have a lot of like Julia Quinn trivia in my brain. Because of these. But this is because emails. exactly this is because I was on the mailing list. So anyway, I might pop out with some weird Julia Quinn trivia, but it's because I have been, yes, a longtime fan of hers, I guess. Okay, no, I'm excited. That's one of my favorite things is what I learned from you. Yeah. Oh, having well. these discussions. Oh, well, thank you, Lane. Yes, so let's dive into the book jacket. Okay. This is was published in 2000. Yes, the year 2000. 20 years ago. All well, right, so 
Can there be any greater challenge to London's ambitious mamas than an unmarried duke? Lady Whistledown's Society Papers, April 1813. By all accounts, Simon Bassett is on the verge of proposing to his best friend's sister, the lovely and almost on the shelf Daphne Bridgerton. But the two of them know the truth. It's all an elaborate ruse to keep Simon free from marriage-minded society mothers. And as for Daphne, surely she will attract some worthy suitors now that it seems a duke has declared her desirable. But as Daphne waltzes across ballroom after ballroom with Simon, it's hard to remember that their courtship is a sham. Maybe it's his devilish smile. Certainly it's the way his eyes seem to burn every time he looks at her. But somehow Daphne is falling for the dashing duke. For real! And now she must do the impossible and convince the handsome rogue that their clever little scheme deserves a slight alteration. And that nothing makes quite as much sense as falling in love. Mm-hmm. I mean, this... Isn't again, I, I feel like we say this every time. It's not inaccurate, but there is so much that is left out. Yeah, I I actually think this is a pretty bad jacket. Yeah, so I the mean, this describes... Lady Whistledown works yes. as the intro, especially given what she yes. wants to do later in the series. But, like, this starts way too late. Like, society thinks he's going to propose. She's old. That's it? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this describes like the middle, the like the middle of the first part of the book. Yeah. And that's it. Like it doesn't describe the rest of the book. I'm really surprised and that this doesn't do a better job of explaining the Bridgerton clan. Yeah. Especially because I'm sure this book jacket is one that was rewritten later. And so you'd think the yeah. first book in such an elaborate series you'd and think. like an established series yeah. would get a little bit more allusion to the Bridgerton clan. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Eh, uh, it's fine. It's, yeah. Um, as usual, we generated a random number and then wrote summaries using that number as our page count or word count, I should say. Yeah. So this, week, uh, this episode, the number is nine. Fake relationship turns real to avoid ruination. Impregnation station. <laughs> So this uh, summary talks a lot about the conflict in the book, which we will get into later. Okay, here's mine. Perfectly adjusted Daphne heals psychologically scarred Simon through love and family. Heck, Agni. Okay. But it's like so true though, it isn't is. it? It's so true. Okay, tropes. This, I mean, love is healing. Love is healing. Oof. You know you really want kids, Lane. No. Um, It'll heal your relationship. Meddling mama and big crazy family. Like, the trope? To a T, oh, yeah. The Bridgerton clan is that. The next, the, you can just pencil this trope in for the next eight books. Yes. Yes. But it's, um, it's, it is done so well. Yeah. Like, that is Quinn's greatest strength, The I Bridgerton think. clan is yes. the appeal of this novel. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. Especially because I end up having some problems with the novel. Yeah. This didn't age well, in my no, opinion. Reading I it for the agree. first time in 2019 was rough. I agree with you. I agree <laughs> with you on this one. And you actually said you didn't think it was that offensive when we were talking about it before you reread it. Well, okay, so, all right. Let's cast your mind back to 2008 when I'm reading this book for the first time. So, okay, I'm going to, this is like a weird, long Meg reminiscence, so I apologize, but we're doing it. So, Man. I read like, 
there are eight books in this series, eight. I read seven of them and my library did not have, the Duke and I did not have this book. I do not know why my book, my library did not have it. Okay. Um, so I actually had to buy this book. So I actually went to the bookstore and bought this physical paperback and I read it and I don't remember hating it. Sure. And then when we were, we decided to reread this for the podcast, Lane came and she said, so I've been hearing that there's some stuff that happens later. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess. I was like, I kind of remember that, but I don't remember it being that terrible. And then I reread it and I was like, holy shit. I was like, I haven't read this book for a while. And damn. And because obviously with the TV show coming out, there was a lot being written about this Mm -hmm. book. And the funny thing is most of the articles focus on the consent issues. Which are numerous. Yes. And we will get to. But I had a bigger problem with the obsession with motherhood and yeah. family and paternofamilias. Like, yeah. it was shoved down your throat. It was not sexy. Yeah. And, I mean, keep in mind, that's going to continue for this whole series because that's what this series is about. It is about family and it's about wanting to have a family. But to speak to your favorite romancing Mr. Bridgerton... Literally every sexual encounter is not laden with thoughts of pregnancy. This is true. This there is, is a very big true. difference between like an emphasis on family and literally put a baby in me. <laughs> right now. I am now. fine with the former. The <laughs> latter is deeply yeah. terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. We also have the brother's best friend. Yes. So Simon is Daphne's oldest brother's bestie. Yeah. So Simon and Anthony went to Eaton together and... Then to, on to Oxford together. And and also, it's said in the book jacket, their courtship is fake. I think pretend courtship turned real is maybe Major trope. trope one one. It's yeah. like almost as bad as almost one room at the only one room at the end. Right. And I right. say bad as in like excellent. Uh, bad as in great. Yes. <laughs> um, duels. Yep. Um, no heirs to inherit. But like, reverse a little. But this is, it makes me think of um, the rogue not taken. Yes. It's like, to, like, The Road Not Taken. I don't know if Sarah McLean was like, I'm going to reread The Duke and I, and they thought, hmm, what a great idea. Give the but, dad no heirs. But this is also, this is also not, like, just these two books. Like, this is all, this, it's not, these are not the only books where this happens. Like, right. Like, the revenge I'm going to take on my father is by not carrying on the Duke down. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just don't see it. But, whatever. And then Daphne's a little tropey in that I think the younger sister, unfazed by male bullshit. Yeah. And all the Bridgerton women yeah. are sort of that way. But I think this is outside of even this genre. Like, yeah. the little sister who ran with boys her whole life and therefore yeah. understands men and is just a friend or is. Well, is I mean, this trophy. is the, it's the whole, the cool girl yes. thing that w- was on, on a rant from. And Helen Peterson. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Lane. You knew exactly what I was thinking. I hated that rant. Yeah. Unrelated. But um, that is a little bit what this is here. Yes. And so... All right. Daphne is popular. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well-dowered. Yes. Like, has a huge dowry. Approachable. Approachable. And yet she can't get anyone to be interested in her because she's everybody's friend. She can't get anyone she wants to be interested in her to be interested in her. Right. But it doesn't seem like she's that picky. Also true, yeah. Like, Daphne definitively wants children and a marriage and is terrified of being on the shelf. She is not one of those, like, 
resigned wallflower types. No. Blue stockings that you usually see in these romance novels. But she's, she's not shy. Not shy. She's very desirous of a marriage. Mm-hmm. And very popular. Mm-hmm. I don't find it very believable yeah. that she has struggled to attract a suitor. Yeah, although I guess it's it's implied that it's also her brother's a little bit. Yeah. But this is just implied because then Anthony, like, goes along with it to help her right. find a, a man. I, and so that my first struggle with this book was the idea that from the way Daphne is described, she is anything but the catch of the season every year she's out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. So Simon, as we've said, hates his dad. Simon hates his dad. And he comes back from traveling? Yeah. Comes, hangs out with Anthony, meets Daphne. Yeah. And he's complaining about meddling mamas, including her. Yeah. She's complaining about being unwanted. Yeah. And she has this brilliant idea that if they pretend... Well, he has this yeah, brilliant idea. Yeah, he has the brilliant idea. idea that if they pretend to be courting... She'll keep other people off his back. Yeah. And and other and men will be encouraged to court her by yeah. his presence. And this is such a trope. Yes. Like, how many books have you read where they the main characters agree to this deal? Yep. Right? With the idea that um, where one man goes, the others will follow. So if it looks like he likes her, then other people are going to do it. And like, I, I, I think that is true. Like, mm -hmm. I don't disagree. But I also think how many times do people really make this deal? Or like, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a sex pact. We know the marriage pact <laughs> right. for like our generation. We're like, if I'm not married by 40, you'll marry me, right? It's of course I will. I will, Lane. Thanks, Meg. I mean, I would have I to get a divorce Julian's first. I going to think of that. <laughs> but... I'll take, I'll take, I'll take care of it. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, they make this pact and at first, um, her family like buys it, especially her older brother, the Duke. Yeah. And Anthony is. Yeah. He's like, Simon, I can't believe you're going after my sister. I know what a horn dog you are. Right. That's basically it. It's so true. I know what you've done with women. He knows he hates his dad and doesn't want kids. Yeah. And so he's like, Daphne does. It's really selfish. So Daphne and Simon make the decision that they have to tell Anthony before he hurts someone. Yeah. So, so they tell him, and Anthony reluctantly agrees to go along with it. But like so reluctantly. Very reluctantly. And this, this goes to my next point, which is that I think the strength of these books is how well this family is written. Yes. Because they, there are eight kids in this family. Named alphabetically. Named alphabetically, yes. Very cutesy. And okay, Anthony. Benedict. Colin. Daphne. Eloise. Francesca. Gregory. And Hyacinth. Okay. Done. We did that right the first time, I promise. Uh-huh. Didn't re-record anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the family is really well established, and especially like the dynamics between the older siblings who know each other really well and the mm -hmm. younger ones where it's more like a, an affectionate, but mm -hmm. more, not parental. Not parental, but definitely like I'm putting up with you. They're, they they still love them, but also are like, yeah, seriously, my kid is gonna throw peas at my suitor at the table. Right, and there's even a moment where I think they realize I don't care if it's this one or romancing Mr. Bridgerton, which at this point are the only two I've read. Um, I'll rectify that shortly, I promise. They realize how similar Hyacinth and Colin are. Yeah, that's um, the other one. That's the other one. Okay. But it's still interesting because, like, there's such a huge gap between yeah. them and age. And I think that's really authentic for yes. these big families. Like, especially the loving ones where yeah. 
you very you see a very different relationship between Anthony through Daphne yeah. in this one. Yeah. Then you do kind of with each success. With the rest and I think it was an interesting choice for Julia Quinn to start with one of the middle children. Yeah. Because I think it was good for exposing you to yeah. like the familial dynamic. Yes. We'll start with the oldest girl because that's another, it's not a trope, but this is just like, this is how romance, I guess it is a trope. This is how romance novels work. Women get married between the ages of 20 and 28. Men get married between the ages of 28 and 39. Yeah. So she's got to start with Daphne, who's 21, 20 or 21 in this book. Anthony, the oldest, is 28. So we can't get to Anthony until... He's, you know, you see what I mean? And some of, that's a trope, but some of that is also historically It's also accurate. true, yeah. Like, in this period, men got married so late because they true. were expected to be established and able to provide before they got married. Yeah. And they had to tour the continent when they were wealthy. And Anthony like, has been the Viscount for, like, 15 years. Oh, he's a Viscount, not a Duke. Right, but they're wealthiest Dukes. Yeah. The, they're right. Okay, yeah. Got it. And Simon is a Duke. Simon is a Duke, he's for the, sure. Got it. Okay. He's the Duke of the Duke and I, and I am definitely... <laughs> Thanks, Meg. <laughs> I know I just forgot the alphabet, but like <laughs> I got that. Okay, okay. So, so the strength of this book is is really the family, yeah. and then also I think the dialogue. Just in general, I think she writes dialogue so well. Yes, and they get better as the series goes on as well. At that too. Yes. Yeah, and I actually really like the mother. Yes, Violet. Mrs. Violet Bridgerton is, is amazing, and she subsequently is presented as a contrast to other parents in all mm -hmm. of the novels. Like Simon's family sucks. Yeah. And Real so mad. she's like a maternal figure to Simon and some other mamas are even more meddlesome. Whereas Violet's meddling always comes from a place of affection. Yes. And she clearly doesn't want any spouse for her children. Not she just anyone. She wants her yeah. children married off, but she wants them married off happily. Yes. And Violet, so in any other book, I really think Violet would just have been the, the meddling mama. Mm -hmm. And in this book... Even though it gets much more uh, pronounced in the, the next books in the series. But in this book, you really see that she has an interior life. Yes. She is her own person, which is great. Like maybe only two or three scenes, only two or three sentences even imply this. And it's enough to be like, oh, yeah. She's like, more than just a stock character. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's move on to offensiveness. Well, okay. So can we just... One line. I feel like this line belongs under offensiveness. Okay. Okay. So this was the line that made Lane die inside. She didn't feel terribly guilty about withholding the news from him. After all, he had withheld his seed from her. Yeah. So this line gets into what is gross about this novel. Yeah. And the central conflict. Yes. So from here on out, I'm going to say if you really want to remain like completely unspoiled, just don't listen to the rest of this podcast. I need to full rant. Yeah. And there's just no way to keep that from being spoilery. Exactly. In a book that spends this much time focusing on seed. <laughs> you, we have read the word seed so many times in this book. Like I've almost gotten to the point that it has no meaning anymore. Yeah. Well, and I also like I'm wondering how is this going to be a plot point in the show? There's a lot of questions I have. Like, the thing I am most offended about on behalf of society right. is that the fascination with the public is, oh my God, there's going to be a black Simon, and not, how do you adapt this book? 
like, where the, the black the, Simon should be on no one's radar. That is so true because, like, seriously, like, the primary conflict in this book is I, I, I do not know how it's going to be put on screen. So Simon, as we alluded to, has decided he wants his line to die with him yeah. to punish his father right. for his terrible upbringing. He tells Daphne... So, like, let's start this way. Their relationship turns from pretend to real because he compromises her. Yeah. And he doesn't want to marry her and do the honorable thing, even though her brother catches them in a very compromising position, because he doesn't want to force her into a life without children. Right. And it's very clear from the entire book that, like, that is her goal in life. She, She has seen how happy her mother is. As a gentlewoman. And she was willing to settle for, like, not a crazy love story. Right. If she could have a family. And remain a part of the aristocracy. Yes. Mm -hmm. So he, like, thinks he's doing the honorable thing by her. And so he tells her he can't have children, which she misinterprets to mean a biological incapability. Okay, let's let's talk about this. So you're yeah. saying he's misinterpreting. This is not a misinterpretation. He says he in the book, he thinks to himself he kind of wants to tell her the truth. Like he acknowledges that he is not being fully honest here. Yes, right? He says I can't have children when the truth is he refuses to have children and will not do it. And this lie is only able to be maintained because she doesn't know how sex works and he pulls out every time. Every time. And, like, he doesn't, she doesn't understand that he needs to come inside of her to make a baby. <laughs> have, yeah. So, like, his lie is predicated on her ignorance that he's not sure she has at this point. Right. Like, he doesn't know how explicit her mother was. Or wasn't. <laughs> or wasn't. He's, like, taking a huge risk by allowing the can't to stand at, like, as a fact. Right. Rather than as a, a choice on his part. A psychological can't rather than a physical right. can't. Yes. And so they have a lot of sex. He pulls out and then she realizes how babies are made. And she gets real pissed. And she gives him an ultimatum. Yeah, she, so when we're talking about withholding things, she basically is like, well, if you're going to withhold your seed from me... Gag me with a spoon. Yes, then I will withhold my body from you. So, like, if you're not going to have sex for the purposes of procreation, I don't want to have sex at all. Yes. And he gets really upset, goes to the local pub, and gets drunk. Yes. He gets really drunk. Comes back to her room and, like, is crying outside of her door. Like, literally crying, I love you, Daphne, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if he says I love you, but he's definitely like, oh, Daphne, you're so important to me. I I can't believe you're not sleeping in my bed. Because, of course, their relationships have, their their feelings have turned to more in the course of their marriage. Oh, of course. Blah, blah, blah. And so she lets him in and he collapses on her bed. Drunk as a skunk. Passes out. Yeah. I don't know why he hasn't puked at this point. Maybe he did before he got there. We don't Mm. know how he smells. Oh, God. Lene, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so he passes out. And she sleeps next to him. And then, like, 
few minutes to hours later. At this point, it's dawn. So I don't know what time he came to her bed. Let's assume like three hours or so have passed. Okay. I feel like that's the sense yeah. I got. So three hours have passed. And she's like, oh, he's, his body is physically responding to me even though he's asleep. Mm-hmm. So she begins stimulating his body. And she's like, hey, he won't do this when he's awake, so maybe I can get him to make me a baby while he's asleep. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We're, like, trying to figure out how to describe this without... So, oh. basically, in the course of the coitus, he awakens. And he at first he's into it. And then he attempts to pull out. And she won't let him. Like, physically traps him and forces him to remain inside of her while ejaculating. So, I mean, it, it is definitely an, a non-consensual encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm dying right now. <laughs> I'm just... I was honestly like, what is that noise? Oh, it's lame. <laughs> I can't. So, she has begun the sex well, when he couldn't consent. Right. Then he wakes up and is into him. And then she forces him to come inside of her. He then flees because yeah. he's pissed. And so the, he flees. Yeah, he flees. And then he's pissed. And so she is waiting to find out if she's pregnant from this lone encounter. Mm-hmm. She is. And so the news she's withholding from him is that, she, no, she's not pregnant. Right. She thinks she's pregnant. And she tells she's... him, I'm pregnant. And then she isn't pregnant. Yeah. Um, so she had a missed abortion or a missed miscarriage, whatever the technical term is. And she doesn't tell him. Right. So the news she's withholding is that she is not, in fact, pregnant. Correct. I can't tell you, beyond the creepy consent problems. Yeah. How disinterested I am in a plot. Yeah. About the concept of put a baby in me. I mean, that is that is the plot. Like, that's I, the entire like, plot. I. It's hard because I can't say I hated this book because the Bridgertons are fun and Julia Quinn is a good writer and parts of their courtship were fun. But the core of this book, I loathed. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing too. So again, this is the, I, this is not a book that I like reread. I remember reading it. Mm-hmm. I remember liking it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I don't, that's it. That's what I remembered. And then when Lane, again, I, I've told the story earlier, but she mentioned it and I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's that bad. And I reread it. I was like, oh my God. I was like, this is like explicitly rape. Like he says that it was unwanted contact. Um, she, she, in the knows book, she, he would she knows consent. he wouldn't consent, and so she, she purposely does it when he can't say no. But something else struck me when I read this book, and it was like, it's literally when the two of them meet, yes. and this is maybe the second chapter, second or third chapter, so very, very early in the book, we have a scene that is like the illustration of rape culture. Um, so what happens is Daphne has turned down a man, Nigel Burbrook. Um, she's turned him down several times. He's I I always sort of imagine him as like a Mr. Collins type who yes. won't take, you know, he, she says no and he's like, yeah, you're just being coy. I'll ask you later. Right. So he corners her at a ball. While drunk. 
well drunk, so he's he's gotten some liquid courage, right? So he can approach her and press his suit. And she says no, and then he takes it physical. He's like, okay, fine, if I can't get you to agree, then I will force you to marry me by ruining you, right. basically. And she punches him in the face and basically knocks him out, which, I mean, great. Good job. I think that's awesome. Yes. Like, that's... So, first of all, we've got Nigel trying to force her into marriage because of, you know... And, like, obviously, sexual assault offensiveness. Right. There you go. So, we've got that. Done. But this is not what I'm talking about, the rape culture. What I I'm talking about is how this is handled. Because Simon is, like, he, he hears that there's an altercation and he goes to rescue the lady, which... Great. That is all. That is what you should do if you hear a sexual assault taking place. You should go stop it. But he is like so impressed by the fact that Daphne can take care of herself by punching him, by punching this other guy, that he's like, wow, she's not like other women. Most other women would be in hysterics, and she's amazing. And I thought, well, wouldn't most other women be allowed to be in hysterics if someone tried to rape them or sexually right. assault them? Like, I think it's totally fair to be in hysterics. Why is it amazing that she's, that she's not affected in this way? So first of all, I'm like, okay, that was really annoying. Um, then she starts taking some of the blame for the encounter. So she's like, oh, I let him on. I said, I said no, but I didn't say no forcefully enough. This is rape culture 101, guys. No means no. She said no, and he forced her, you know, um, but, and yet she feels guilty because she was nice to him in the refusal. Now, does it bother me when you're mean to someone when you say no? No. I'm happy to be mean to someone if, if I want to be. But saying nice when you say no is still saying no, right? Okay, then... What does Simon think when she says this? Wow, I wouldn't be as generous with someone who did that. So it's generosity that she's displaying towards this man by forgiving him. Instead of him saying, actually, you were right, you know, all along, you shouldn't be feeling guilty about this and, and reaffirming that. Nope, he's just like, wow, she's an amazing girl. And thirdly, in this entire encounter, Simon is like imagining pushing her up against the wall and kissing her. So I needed to talk about that. That yeah. his response to watching her get or hearing her get assaulted is to think about having intercourse with her. She's hot. I would love to push her up against the wall and get intimate. What stops him is not the fact that this would be mm, sexual assault. It is the fact that he realizes that she is Anthony Bridgerton's sister. I know I said I was going to rant, but Meg, you just killed that. I'm, I, I am, and this scene is like the very beginning of the book. I reread this and I thought, holy shit, this is their meet cute. Their meet cute is a sexual assault. Yes. It's her sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And it's treated as like... Comic nothing. relief. This yeah. is, this, it li truly is treated as comic relief. Nigel is completely forgiven. Later in the book, he's married off to someone else and like totally treated as like perfectly fine like he receives no blame for what he did yes so so this is and it's really used as a like testament to her character as yes. you were describing in a way that is crazy gross exactly exactly this book i think the adjective for this book is gross which but, is hard so i and that is 
for me, that is the hardest thing about this book because so that we have one adjective, which is gross, but we also have another adjective, which is cute. Like this book is also very, very cute. Yeah. It's just a shame that whenever they get intimate seems to be when the gross factor comes out. Yeah. In one way or another. And like, this is their first sexual encounter. So they get married before they actually have sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they get married before they have sex. And so their first sexual encounter, he is so happy with his virgin bride. He's so, so into it that she doesn't know what in the world she's doing. And not just because it allows him to perpetuate his lie of being infertile. Yeah. But like, because he lusts after her lack of experience. Yeah. Which... I don't need every heroine to be sexually experienced. I just need innocence to not be fetishized because you're holding up these patriarchal values by Mm -hmm. celebrating it. Yes. And that's, it's very interesting because honestly, I don't think I would have thought twice about that before starting this podcast. Yeah. Um, And this is something that I think is is big for you, Elaine. Yes. And (laughs) it's, now I'm like noticing it in... Lots and lots and lots of books. Lots of books. Contemporary books, historical books, lots of books. And like historicals, if women are celebrating their own chastity because it matters to them, fine. Like, I get in the sense of whether historical accuracy or characterization that that might be the case. But the fact that men find it erotic Mm -hmm. that women are inexperienced bothers me. Because it's infantilizing. Yeah. And because it's sexualizing infantile behavior. Yeah. It's like, why are virginal, young, naive women appealing? Right. If you can give me a non-fucking disturbing reason for that. But I don't think there is one. (laughs) Right. Yeah. What are you really celebrating? The fact that you've gotten to whore around and those women are lesser? Yeah. Is it the fact that you have a childish woman in your bed? Like. Yeah. 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 Ew. So, oh my God. All right. You know, guys, you got like two for the price of one. This was like super rant. And like, it's hard because I know this is like a seminal work. It, it really is. All right. Let's talk about, let's talk about sexiness. We have to finish on this because we always do. Yes. And like, I'm glad we've changed the order. Yeah. Because I am glad we're not ending with, oh my God, all the rape. <laughs> I okay. Know, I know. Okay. Like, so sexy. Like, it, it, I would say it's, it's like mildly sexy. I do feel the attraction between them. Yes. Like before they hook up, you know, and they're pretending to be courting. I loved them dancing together. Right. I liked the banter. That's what I'm saying. It's like I, before they got married, I like loved it. The family yachting trip. Yes. They're like actually opening up to each other, yep. not under duress. Mm-hmm. There's, there are, you see the seeds of things to work with here. Yes. Uh, seeds. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Yes. Yes. This. There, there are, there are, there are things that are great about this book. There truly are things that are really, really good. And I would argue groundbreaking about this book in in the history of romance novels. Um, So I would say like before this time, the novel had a novel, a romance novel had to have some kind of um, fantastic element to it. So like they're spies or there's a mystery or there is some kind of super crazy backstory, whatever. And in, or the woman is a botanist. Like, we've got lots of things. In this book, what is Daphne? She's a 20-year-old lady who wants to be a wife and a mother. Yeah. And she has a 
non-dysfunctional family that all get really, they get along with each other really, really well. And he's a duke. And he's a duke. He's traveled the continent. Mm-hmm. He's a good duke. He's yeah. good to his people. Right. But, yeah. So that's what I mean by groundbreaking. Okay. You, you, you know? Yeah. And so there are things that are great, and then there are things that are gross. <laughs> so gross. Right? So, so gross. And it's hard because... It's not just the instances we've talked about specifically. Mm-hmm. I mean, she thinks about getting pregnant as yeah. sexy constantly. Yeah. Like, his mental focus on pulling out every time they have sex mm-hmm. was such a turnoff. Yeah. But it really, it downplays the chemistry between the characters to have both of them so distracted yeah. when they're with one another. Him yeah. by not wanting a baby and her by yeah. wanting a baby. And then, like, thinking back on this, I, I really do think that this entire situation would have played out differently if it were set 200 years in the future. Like, obviously, she's 20 years old. He's 28. They go on a few dates. They, have, they make out in the garden. Would anyone have forced them to get married at that point? No. Then he would have broken up with her and she would have been sad. She would have found someone else. Yeah. Like, that's what would have happened. Ultimately, this whole trope of, like, compromise together and have to get married is such a hallmark of the genre. Right. That, like, clearly all of them right. face this criticism. But in this case, I think your point is that these two characters aren't well-suited. Right. They have good reason for wanting different things. Right. And, and she comes off as very, so young. She comes off as very, very young. Like, which we, I realize we just ranted about ad nauseum. But, and he comes off as, like, set in his ways, and ultimately we talked about the healing power of love, and, like, obviously he's going to be a great dad, and his reasons for not Mm -hmm. wanting kids were stupid. Yeah. But, like, that's offensive, too. Yeah. Like, he's a 28-year-old man who's made a decision. Yeah. Like, why is it this 20-year-old woman's job to, like, enlighten him through rape? Yeah. I will say, guys, I am, this entire review aside, I'm very interested to see what this looks like on screen. (laughs) We're going to probably have to review the episode. Yeah. Like, that's my guess. We'll watch it together. Maybe we'll do like a live stream. Live stream. Okay. That's fair. Well, we'll figure something out, guys. We'll make it special. Yeah. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening. You can rate, review, and subscribe if you enjoy. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.